Hello, my name is Nick Bright, scholar of East Asian religions. And I'm Proven Paradox, a guy with a lot of questions. And you're listening to Bright on Buddhism, a podcast where we discuss East Asian Buddhism, answering listener-submitted questions from listeners just like you, and introducing concepts of Buddhism that you may or may not be familiar with in a casual, conversational setting. Enjoy. Hermit, do you think that there is a singular underlying code to reality? A coherent series of if-then relationships that lead to the arising of all that we experience around us? I do not have enough knowledge or experience to even begin to answer that question usefully, and I don't think any mortal ever will. Though, if anyone could, it would certainly be the Buddha. Right you are, Hermit. The Buddha would have it that the Dharma is that code. Emptiness, impermanence, suffering, nirvana... These are the only pillars of reality, experience, personhood, and everything else that ever occurs or arises in the world stems from those things. So to fully understand and realize those is to come to a complete and perfect understanding of the nature of reality then? And from that we can understand how sentient beings, nature, and the world around us all fit together? This is indeed what the Buddha says. Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of Bright on Buddhism. This week, we will be discussing the five aggregates. What are the five aggregates? How do they fit into the Buddhist understanding of reality, death, and reincarnation? And how have understandings of them changed over time? We hope you enjoy. So, what are the five aggregates? Broadly speaking, these are the five tangible characteristics or factors of samsaric reality that give rise to craving and desire whenever we relate to them or believe them to be equivalent to self. The five are form, which in Sanskrit is known as rupa, sensations, or vedana, perceptions, or samjna, mental activity, or sankara, and consciousness, or vijnana. In Sanskrit, these are called the five skandhas. And the word skanda translates roughly to aggregate, or grouping, or collection, or something like that. And I think that these are mostly appropriate translations. You can also think of these things as domains. There are things that have physical form, and these are all the things that are tangible by the senses, that take up space, that have mass and volume, etc. If you happen to be a materialist, you believe that this skanda is all there is in reality and that everything in reality can be observed, measured, touched, weighed, etc. In the Buddhist doctrine above that, there are the sensations, or the Vedanas. These do not have physical characteristics like mass and volume, but are instead phenomena of the senses which occur when the sense faculty, such as sight or smell or taste, meets with the sense object, the thing that can be seen, the thing that can be smelled, the thing that can be tasted. Sight itself does not have mass, nor does it have volume, nor does it have any tangible physical characteristics. Sight is seeing, which requires eyes and something visible. Both of these things fall under the category of rupa, or form, something with physical characteristics, but sight conceptually does not, and that's why it falls under the category of vedanas. The same is true of more complicated sensations, like pleasure or pain. Above that realm is perceptions, or samjna. Samjna is our categorical knowledge. This is the faculty of sentient beings which categorizes something blue as being blue, something hot as being hot, something cold as being cold. All of the perceptive information that we get 
based on the physical characteristics of an object, these get sort of filed and labeled into Samjana. This is the storehouse of categories that we have for things that we see in the world. When we see a car, our Samjana knows that the car has four wheels, it has a fuel source, it carries people and things, etc. We may also have some experiential memories or perceptions of that car, such as this car drives better than that one, or one may have had an accident in their cars and now are anxious to drive. These are all Samjana having to do with the sense object that we label or tag as a car. Above that are mental activities, or Sankara. These are the judgments that we make about our perceptions about that sense object, which cause us to act how we do. This is what modern psychology might call the executive functioning part of our neuroanatomy. This is the storehouse of all of our knowledge, perceptions, and sensory memory that tells us that hot stoves should not be touched, and that sharp things need to be handled carefully, and so on. This is where we internalize our desire for pleasure and the desire for the absence of pain. All of this happens and is stored in the consciousness, or the vijnana. We've talked about the Vijnana a few times on this podcast, but we'll explain a little bit of it again in the context of the five aggregates. This Vijnana is all at once the base that supports all of the five aggregates and also the activity of those five aggregates. This is where our desire, our karmic behaviors, and our cognition experience is all stored. Thanks to this storage, we are propelled through samsara in the cycle of rebirth until we're able to completely dump out the Vijnana. You will remember that the Yogacara Buddhists argue that the Vijnana stores seeds of all the karmically good, karmically bad, and karmically neutral experiences and activities that we undergo. And to achieve enlightenment is to essentially purify this Vijnana, and to dump out all of the karmic bad, and to leave behind karmic neutral, and to transcend karmic good into nirvana. How do they fit into the Buddhist understanding of reality, death, and reincarnation? These five aggregates are essentially one way of understanding how everything in reality fits together in the realm of experience. We have seen throughout the whole show that Buddhism is concerned with the nature of reality and experience as it truly is, not as we perceive it. It asks and answers the questions like, are these two things the same? Are these different? What is the gap between them? Do either of them really exist? Meaning, of course, reality and experience. The five aggregates are one of the answers to the question of how ought we understand reality as we experience it. They are five categories or even realms in which capital E everything falls. Every single physical thing in reality falls into the realm of form. Every single nameable sensation falls into the realm of sensations. Every single opinion we can come to about a sensation falls into the realm of perceptions. Every single opinion and behavior that can possibly be carried out by a sentient being, falls into the realm of mental activity. Finally, we get to the Vijnana, which, according to some Buddhists, is really all there is in reality, at all. That constitutes all of total reality, because everything that we have mentioned so far is an activity of that Vijnana. Other Buddhists argue that this simply is just our awareness of our behaviors, this Vijnana, and our awareness of our very awareness of ourselves, and not actually everything in reality all at once. However, you can see that everything in reality falls into one of these five categories nevertheless. It should also be mentioned that Buddhism regards sentient beings as being coextensive with reality, and that shows through in the Five Aggregates Doctrine. 
Not only does every single thing in reality fall into one of these categories or realms, but also every sentient being is wholly made up of these five. We have a physical body, we have six senses, we have myriad sensations available to each of those six senses, we have opinions about those sensations, we have behaviors determined by those opinions, and we have consciousness or awareness of ourselves as well as meta-awareness of ourselves. We can define this meta-awareness as the awareness of our awareness of self. Now the final point that was brought up about the five aggregates is death. The five aggregates are an important part of the Buddhist doctrine of death. When we die, if we are bound to be reborn in samsara, of course, our five aggregates reshuffle according to our karmic past. Most Buddhist doctrine holds that this occurs from the top down. First, our consciousness, under the weight and momentum of our karmic past, dissolves at the moment of death. It does not disappear. It does not carry over exactly as is. It just dissolves. Then, because the other four aggregates are dependent on the activity of the consciousness, they too dissolve. We become unable to act and execute behaviors, so we have lost sankara. We become unable to have opinions about sensations, and so we lose samjana. We become unable to experience sensations at all, and so we lose vedana. Our body decays and disintegrates and turns into soil, dust, dirt, ashes, smoke, so we lose our rupa. The most important thing here is that just like the body changes form and dissolves and decays but does not disappear, so too does consciousness do the same thing. At the moment of birth, these things reconstitute, resolidify, and take new form. This consumes, you might think of, the karmic energy released by the dissolution of the body, yielding a net zero expenditure. I've mentioned before that karma represents reality's inclination towards reflexivity, or in this case, net neutral energy expenditure. And that's why it can often be compared to Newton's laws of thermodynamics. If there is karmic energy released by the dissolution of the body, of the consciousness, of the sensations, of anything like that, that energy then has to be consumed or otherwise transformed whenever someone is reborn and is then reconstituted into a new form. And of course, the amount of karmic energy that's released, whether someone has a lot of bad karma or a lot of good karma, is proportional exactly to how they will be transformed and reborn in their next life. This is sort of karma science, physics of karma, thermodynamics and karma, if you might think of it that way. So I'm curious what the distinction is between dissolving and disappearing in this case. Like, what exactly is the distinction you're trying to make by using that word specifically? I want to draw attention to the fact that nothing in samsara disappears. This would violate the laws of physics. This would violate the law of impermanence and emptiness. This is not something that can happen. Impermanence means that things change over time, but they do not disappear. Something cannot be turned into nothing, and nothing cannot be turned into something. Okay, so the components are still in the solution if we're going to continue talking about this in terms of dissolving. So the components are still there, but they're no longer connected in a reason in a way that we would really recognize? Exactly. Well, it's kind of like a phase change. A solid turns into a liquid or it turns into a gas, right? This is kind of a bad analogy because it's not what really happens according to the Buddhist doctrine. But if you had to think of it in concrete terms that make it make sense, what is now a solid consciousness upon the moment of death 
turns into something gaseous or nebulous or mercurial. And according to the energy released by that change in phase, the person then is reconstituted. The consciousness is reconstituted into a new physical form whenever the person is reborn. How have understandings of the aggregates changed over time? So these five aggregates come from a very early stratum of Buddhist doctrine and are therefore present in nearly all later Buddhist doctrines. It's just that debates about what the significance and the importance and the nature of these aggregates actually are changes over time. In the early doctrine, there is what one might call an analytical way of looking at them. The purposes of various types of meditation were to understand, list out, describe, and analyze all subcategories and subtypes of things that exist within each of the five aggregates. This takes place in the Abhidharma literature. We haven't talked about Abhidharma literature a lot yet, but this is one of the three baskets, uh, one of the Tripitaka, and of course the other two are the Vinaya, the rules for monks, and the sutras, the doctrinal texts. And the Abhidharma literature is the collection of all of the commentaries and analyses that have been performed on the sutras after their composition and circulation. The Abhidharma literature seeks to enumerate all types of things with form, all types of things with sensation, all types of perception or emotion, all types of behavior or mental activity, and all types of consciousness. Additionally, it seeks to work out the nature of all of those things, as it applies to the Dharma. Are these things karmically good, karmically bad, karmically neutral? It's essentially like trying to create a giant handbook for reality, for understanding how to navigate reality and create a coherent system of practice and of meditation and understanding that builds on the foundation of the sutras. However, even more than all of those things, they also contain within them really, really strong debates with other commentaries and analyses. So what we end up with is a huge volume of literature that's very complicated and very difficult to read and understand because it's trying to create a handbook for reality and it's also trying to get one up on the other guy who tried to make a handbook on reality. Nevertheless, there was this analysis bent in the early tradition, but when that tradition turned into the Mahayana tradition in East Asia, emphases of the doctrine changed. In China, Korea, Vietnam, and Japan, the emphasis of the teaching became emptiness, the middle way, non-attachment, the bodhisattva ideal, and other things that we've talked about in the show. To that end, the Mahayanists came to regard the five aggregates as being totally empty, as being not-self, and as being, of course, subject to impermanence and marked by dukkha. So to take a step back and to make more sense of this, I should say that the early tradition was concerned with brute forcing omniscience. For those that don't know, brute forcing is a means of trying to guess passwords, and the method is where you attempt to guess every different combination of characters that could possibly occupy a space to try and figure out what the right one is. They were trying to achieve omniscience by learning the nature and characteristics of every single thing in reality, and then meditating on the nature of that thing and coming to a greater understanding of reality. In general, brute force is extremely inefficient compared to other methods available to us. This is not to speak poorly of the method of the earlier traditions and the later Theravada traditions and the methods they employ, but it is to demonstrate the enormity of the task that they undertake. 
brute forcing when it comes to certain types of passwords can take geological time or even astronomical time to efficiently complete. I would say it's not even possible to efficiently complete a brute force attempt. It goes without saying that you can't do this in one lifetime. In fact, the texts, when they're talking about the path of enlightenment in the early tradition and on into the Mahayana tradition, of course, but especially in the early tradition, they say that it takes three Mahakalpas to reach enlightenment. A Mahakalpa is a unit of astronomical time. Astronomical time is beyond even the comprehension. Like We can't even count to a number that is a fraction of astronomical time in our heads. We can have like a mental image of five or of 10. And if we really, really try hard, we can have a mental image of a hundred. But can we have a mental image of a hundred billion billions, right? We can't. And this is kind of how many years would fit into a kalpa or a maha kalpa. And then we'd have to multiply that times three. <laughs> and that's how long it takes from the minute that you start until the minute that you reach your final nirvana without remainder. This is one way of applying the five aggregates to try to bend them towards enlightenment, to try and attain enlightenment and perfect understanding. The other way, one of the other ways, comes through in the Mahayana tradition. The Mahayana tradition sought to address the issue at the point of the self. In the Mahayana tradition, all ignorance about reality began with the incorrect belief that we as those five aggregates personified or solidified or congealed or however you want to think about it, have a permanent and unchanging self. This is a belief that goes back to the early strata, of course, but it becomes much more refined and complex in the Mahayana tradition. When you look up definitions of the five aggregates, you see that the mistake that people make is relating with these five aggregates. And that's where the Mahayana discourse comes in. They're thinking of it by saying, Okay, to think that I am Rupa, that Rupa is self, is incorrect. To think that Vedana is incorrect. To think that Samjna is self, is incorrect. To think that Sankara is self, etc., etc., all the way up to the level of Vijnana. And in the Mahayana tradition, they regard those five aggregates as empty, the Four Noble Truths as empty, the Buddha as empty, and therefore, our duty is not to brute force omniscience, but maybe to make use of an information leak or exploit. In computer science, this, of course, is where you get a hint at the password or you even get a complete password without having to brute force anything. In the Mahayana tradition, by coming to an understanding of the nature of self, by coming to an understanding of the nature of emptiness, of impermanence, by understanding these few key pieces of information, which would make up the exploit, we can purify our karma and our ignorance in a different way than trying to learn and understand everything in reality, one thing at a time. So I was not aware of this brute force approach in the Theravada tradition or the earliest traditions. And normally when we've talked about distinctions between Theravada and Mahayana, I've tended to lean towards the Theravada position. But in this instance, I think the Mahayana approach makes a lot more sense to me. Often in these and the sutras in Buddhist doctrine and talking about the way Buddhists refer to the world, arbitrarily large numbers are brought up. Like, you know, it's like, what was it? 80 something thousand that we saw on that one sutra, like in over and over. Sutra we saw. Yeah, yeah. yeah. 
but big numbers keeps getting shown up. And the distinction that matters here is whether we're talking about a really, really big number or actual infinity. Actual infinity is you cannot count to infinity. It's not possible. So if the universe that we're looking at is actually infinite, then the brute force solution cannot work. If there are infinite things to cognize, then especially if there are more things to cognize being brought up as the universe goes on, then it's how then one can't really catch up to that. Now, if the universe is just really, really big, but not actually infinite, then yes, eventually brute forcing will work. And so that's why the, especially in the Theravada tradition, I, it's talking about how long this takes, because if the way to do it is to brute force it, then yeah, there's no quick way to do that. That's just, you have to do the work. Thinking of, the Mahayana tradition going for an exploit solution rather than a brute force solution. Like if that works, which, you know, we're talking about religion, so that's not a question we can usefully answer, but if that works, then the exploit approach is just going to get more results. But as with computer science, if what you're going for to bypass the brute force solution doesn't work, then you have no choice but to go back to brute force. So uh, at the end of the day, it's a matter of what you believe as to whether which approach works better. Absolutely. I agree completely. And I have to speak about and speak to the divide between Mahayana doctrine and discourse and Theravada discourse and doctrine because it exists in the texts and it exists in real world. But I really don't think that it's a useful way of understanding Buddhism when you get down into the weeds. And when I say you get down into the weeds, I say like, you know, if someone goes to a Zen monastery and they are there to find their exploit and achieve enlightenment, the efficient, quick way, they may be a little bit disappointed <laughs> because there is obviously like, even with an exploit in Buddhism, the form of the exploit might just be here's the types of characters that you will find in this password, rather than here are some of the characters in the password. It's a way of trying to understand principles by which those characters arise, rather than trying to tell you, here is a string of several of the characters in a row, and you just have to find out where those fit in the password, or this is the first seven characters, or this is the last characters. You know, this None of that happens. It's all just like, you will only see capital letters in this setting. You will only see numbers in this setting. Here is a pattern by which these characters take form, but it's up to you to fill in what character it is. And in that regard, you know, it's the computer science analogies start to fall apart. But right. also, I think that the Mahayana and Theravada divide also starts to fall apart. Because while the Theravada may regard the exploit method as cutting corners or being ineffective for solving suffering and solving aging, illness, and death for all sentient beings, they're kind of speaking to themselves as well because they're going along similar lines just in different ways and with different methods, if that makes sense. Ultimately, they are both wholly concerned with understanding the true nature of reality and coming to a perfect 
diamond-like understanding of how things work. And once they have that, that's their, that's the password, whatever password they're looking for. In that regard, you can see like, okay, the Mahayana Theravada divide is shifty and hazy, and it's not quite as hard set as we might like. And sometimes you might do one method for a while and then switch to the other method and then go back and forth in practice. And, you know, I think that even if in computer science, brute forcing is an inefficient method for certain contexts, I think that the early traditions and the Theravada traditions, they both still are on equal ground with the Mahayana practices and doctrines. And I think that the Mahayana doctrines are just, like I say, they're, you might call them a top-down approach instead of a bottom-up approach. They right. try and start you at the Bodhisattva part. And the early traditions regard the Bodhisattva part as the second-to-last part, right? And before that, of course, is Pratyekya Buddhas, Arhats, and everybody else. And then, of course, the other realms, right? And I think that the task, regardless of where you enter it, kind of ends up being the same size of task. And that's why the, the text in, Mahayana, in the Mahayana canon still say things like, it'll take three Mahakalpas. Or even in the Lotus Sutra, whenever the Buddha is giving prophecies of future Buddhahood to people, it'll be longer than that. He'll say that in however many hundred thousand Kalpas, someone will reach Buddhahood, right? And that has its own purpose in the text. But that's also to demonstrate, like, this is no small feat. And this is not something that can be done in one lifetime. It's not something that can really even be conceived of. And it often causes people to freak out and to think this is impossible. There's a phase in people's training that's well documented where they think, oh my God, I'm never going to make it. This is just too hard. This is not going to work. I will never reach enlightenment. And they actually sometimes give up. And you can't blame them. Yeah, the task is tremendous, and nobody is making any promises otherwise. Like, it's pretty upfront. It's like, this is hard. And the five aggregates are one window through which you can view that difficulty, and one window through which you can view the different methods by which they undertake a task like this. Because this is one of the ways that they categorize the different characters of the password, and how we ought to understand them and what we ought to do with them. We hope you have enjoyed this discussion of the five aggregates. Join us next week when we will discuss Pure Land Buddhism. What is Pure Land Buddhism? How is it different from other schools of Buddhism? How do these differences play out in ritual and practice? We hope to see you there, and thank you very much for listening. See you next time. Thank you for listening. My name is Nick Bright, scholar of East Asian religions and the voice of Hebrew. And I'm Docs, editor, question asker, and voice of Hermit. And this has been Bright on Buddhism. Thank you for listening. If you like our podcast, or if you have a question you'd like us to discuss, we'd love to hear from you. Please consider leaving a comment or review, subscribing, or joining us on social media. Email us at bright.on.buddhism at gmail.com, or tweet us at brightbuddhism. As always, citations and resources for this episode can be found in the show notes. Thank you.